Welcome to the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center Equity Spotlight Podcast. This podcast series will feature the center's equity fellows, national scholars from North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio who are working to advance equitable practices within school systems. Each episode will focus on a topic relevant to ensuring equitable access and participation in quality education for historically marginalized students, specifically in the areas of race, sex, national origin and religion, and at the intersection of socioeconomic status. The podcast today is a follow-up from our previous podcast episode on the implications of desegregation and school choice. If you haven't had an opportunity, we recommend that you check out that episode, as well as understanding racial opportunity costs for high-achieving students of color. To explore our topic of today, which is focused on the landscape of school choice, I want to first introduce our guest panelists. Today we have Chris Thielen, Alonzo Gilzean, and Dr. Vincent Chambers, who are all actively working and engaged in researching this area of school choice. To begin, could you all share how you came to the work of school choice? Sure. I mean, you know, I have the work that I've been doing on racial opportunity cost or the cost of, of school success for high achieving students of color. But even that work is sort of an outgrowth of um, a larger interest that I have in post-Brown um, ed policy and kind of looking at the contemporary effects of desegregation. Um, and so moving back to Michigan several years ago, it gave me the opportunity to kind of return to these roots around desegregation because Michigan has an interesting history in the whole desegregation landscape, and we'll talk about that today. Um, but um, this team, Alonzo, Chris, uh, myself, and then also Dr. John Yun got together to kind of look at some of the implications of um contemporary school choice um, given these larger desegregation trends and so that what is what led us to the work that we're doing now uh, i study educational policy and i'm specifically interested in ed policy in urban environments parental engagement policy and school choice policy uh, so working on this this project with dr chambers and the rest of the team has been a really great opportunity for me to look at the intersections between parental engagement policy and school choice. I also study um, urban environments and how black students um, are educated in these sort of environments. So when I first got here, choice really wasn't a part of my own research agenda. Um, however, I it got added as I was working with Dr. Chambers and Chris and Dr. Yun. And I did have some experience in the state of Pennsylvania working with a charter school there. So it was really interesting to see how choice policies were shaped there in comparison to choice policies here in Michigan. Um, and being able to do this work here has allowed me to educate myself um, about these sort of issues and talk meaningfully about the way that policy works here in the state of Michigan. So could you all share what is the landscape of school choice in Michigan? Uh, so school choice uh, policy in Michigan uh, really started coming to the fore in the early 1990s under uh, Governor Angler's administration and the uh, conservative lawmakers who were in power at the time. And that came along with uh, several other market-based uh, free choice type uh, law initiatives and uh, the most prominent 
uh, forms of school choice in Michigan are charter schools, which get a lot of attention, but also interdistrict school choice, which is where uh, students from one district can transfer to another district within the same intermediate school district or a contiguous one. And a really important part of this policy is if a district agrees to um, receive a transfer student, the per pupil funding allotment from the state transfers with the student when they go to the new school. So there's some really important financial implications that come along with that. And currently about 90% of school districts in, Michi in Michigan choose to participate in the policy. I think it's interesting, you know, the context that you provided, Chris, is really helpful. Um, and there's this kind of contemporary focus on school choice in Michigan, but I don't think um, people are always aware about the kind of um, foundation of school choice in Michigan going back even further than that into the 70s with the Milliken case. I don't know if you want to kind of talk about the irony of the, of the contemporary work given that foundation. Yeah, those are some important connections that our team has made. Um, the Milliken versus Bradley Supreme Court decision uh, happened in 1974, and that was a ruling based on uh, a busing plan in metropolitan Detroit that attempted to bus students from the suburbs into Detroit and students from Detroit into the suburbs. And that faced really heavy challenges from uh, many suburban districts. There were uh, just over 50 districts involved in that case. And uh, ultimately, the Supreme Court ruled that school districts cannot be forced to uh, bus students across district lines and parents don't have to comply. And that had really important implications for desegregation efforts that had been happening across the country. Um, and so it's interesting to think in that historical context how uh, not so long ago, actually, um, there were many districts in metropolitan Detroit that were fighting to keep students from Detroit out of their district. And now for many reasons, particularly the financial implications of accepting transfer students, there are many, many districts in Detroit that get a pretty big chunk of their student population um, from transfer students from Detroit now. And I'll just go ahead and add to that. So I worked with Dr. Yun to look at this quantitatively. So we merged data, um, OCR data, census data, and desegregation data to create one data set that allowed us to look at demographics over time. From there, we calculated what's called a dissimilarity index, and it's an index or a statistics that's used to um, look at the difference between percentage distributions. Here we were looking at race, obviously, because we're looking at um, desegregation. Um, and what we noticed is in the 1970s, which is sort of like this pre-Millican period, and in the 1980s, which is this Millican period, there wasn't a lot of movement in terms of demographics across the 53 Millican districts. However, once we got to 1995, we noticed starting from there through 2013, which is what we had data for, that there are big shifts occurring with a lot of students transferring out of Detroit into the districts around Detroit. What we want to em emphasize is that a lot of these were one-way transfers. There was declining enrollment in Detroit, and these transfers were going out of Detroit, which speaks to what Chris was talking about when we're looking at um, who's, who's leaving and who's staying um, in these different communities. So then we decided to explore this a little further, and we had conversations with legislators who were around during the time of Proposal A. Um, we had talks with legislators on both sides, and what we found was that there, even though Proposal A had this sort of desegregative effect, right, there, there was no 
actual discussion of or very little discussion of race one coming up with a proposal a lot of it was equity but equity defined through financial equity and and um things of that nature without explicitly naming race which kind of speaks to you know sometimes policies can be colorblind and we were really interested in in that aspect of Mm -hmm. proposal a and exploring that So for our listeners, uh, we have people from who are listening from a variety of states, right? Um, and they may be thinking, why Michigan? But um, I think why Michigan? Because of much of what you all have mentioned and mm-hmm. how um, cases like Milliken have, have an influence on what happens in other places. Right. So can you all talk about um, the Benton Harbor case? I know that that's um, something that's now being talked about in more research. So um, how does what you're talking about connect to what's happening in Benton Harbor? Can you talk about what's happening there and, and what that might mean for other places? Sure. Uh, Benton Harbor was in the news this past summer uh, because of the G- Governor Gretchen Whitmer's p- proposed plan to close the high school. And that plan was in response to uh, many, many years of the district being under-resourced, facing uh, quickly declining enrollment and um, financial trouble because of that declining enrollment. Um, and in many ways, Benton Harbor, because of these enrollment re- issues in response to school choice and then other struggles that urban districts face, we, we see them as a, a good example of the, the um, troubles in urban districts and the consequences of policy intervention, not just in Michigan, but also across the Midwest and really across the North. Mm-hmm. Um, Benton Harbor, if you go back and look at their history, they also had a a desegregation case in the 1960s. And the remedies uh, of the findings of that desegregation case, a lot of people actually think that that contributed to white flight and in some ways the decline of the district. So that there's important policy implications to consider there. And then also, Um, The government responses to the struggles of the district have, a lot of folks say that those responses have have made things worse. So it it seems that this past summer, the situation in in Benton Harbor really came to a head uh, in which, um, you know, in the last couple of decades, several policymakers have said, we, something needs to be done mm-hmm. in Benton Harbor. We got to do something. So then we have the governor's plan of closing the high school. Um, and it's certainly uh, open for debate whether that was uh, a viable strategy. But something that's really important within that community is the counter narrative of folks within the community and particularly within the high school who said, we don't want to lose our high school. This is a big part of our identity. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were all these wonderful success stories that people were sharing in social media and through traditional media about the impact that Benton Harbor schools had on their education and and their life. so I think maybe Alonzo is going to talk a little bit more about those sorts of issues in Benton Harbor. Yeah, so we, um, what we really wanted to emphasize, and we were looking at Benton Harbor as sort of, as Chris was saying, an exemplar, but also to talk broadly about policies in urban districts and how we think about those things and how they affect the people in the communities, right? So there's this book by Richard Rothstein that's been kind of, has kind of become Bible for me called A Home Color of Law that talks about policies within the context of how they affect the people who they're intended for, right? And um, even if, one of the thesis of this is like, even if 
laws and policies are unintentionally racist, which, you know, is a, is a stretch to believe, right? The knowledge of the effect of those require us to act, right? Um, but the action, the policies that are passed a lot of times are, color, can in you know, in these examples are often colorblind and don't include the community. Mm -hmm. So we want to focus on counter narratives because counter narratives allow us to splinter narratives of communities or of um, of groups or cultures or, or anything like that and really speak truth to um, things that were going on, kind of tearing down presuppositions or um, thoughts that already exist. So we wanted to, to do this work in general to say, to really speak to the idea that policy has effects, um, it affects different communities in different ways and things like that. And communities usually have things to say, but are they being heard in the discussions? Are they being included in the ways that things are being done? Are they being included in the analysis of the unintended, well, I'll use quotes for that, effects of these sort of things? And we really wanted to dig in and, um, and look at that. So. Yeah, if I just kind of think about um, the way that this research team is positioned to um, speak to a couple of important um, policy considerations here. There are, there are a couple of things. First, I think that this kind of increasing desegregation um, in suburban schools is seen by a lot of people as a, as a good thing. And I, I think it could be a good thing, but I don't think it's an unqualified good thing. And that's where the work on racial opportunity cost comes in to say, when you have unintended desegregation and you have an increasingly diverse student population in a school district that is not prepared to, to um, work competently with that with that population, you know, what happens? And my work says that they, you know, not so great things can happen as a result of that if we're not working with districts to be more responsive um, to their student um, populations. Mm -hmm. And then I think related to that, as Chris and Alonzo have said, the work, you know, when, when things come up in Benton Harbor or in Detroit or in other urban areas and the um, inclination can be to blame Benton Harbor for the financial situation that they've been in or mm -hmm. to say there should have been this response or they should have been more responsible here or these things should have happened. And it's not just Benton Harbor. It's in communities all across um, the state and across the region and across this country. When really, when we look at the historical considerations, there are decades of disinvestment, of financial neglect, of, you know, these schools, these communities really being um, disrespected, mm -hmm. right? And then so to come in um, and put the blame on them, you know, is really unfortunate. And I think that it's our intention, my intention anyway, I can speak for my intention, is to serve almost as a conscience here mm -hmm. for the community, to remind um, ourselves, to remind our policymakers that these decisions didn't happen in a vacuum and there are important historical considerations to what happened and how we got where we are. Um, and that's what I think this research team is really trying to bring to the forefront. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for being here today and sharing your expertise in this area. I learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners did too. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. To find out about other Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center podcasts and other resources, visit our website at www. Dot .greatlakesequity.org. To subscribe to a podcast, 
Click on the podcast link located on the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center website. The Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, a project of the Great Lakes Equity Center at Indiana University, is funded by the U.S. Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout the 13-state region. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education, S004D11002. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. This podcast and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for the use for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or in any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by any information storage and retrieval systems without permission in writing from the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. Finally, the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center would like to thank Indiana University School of Education, as well as Executive Director, Dr. Kathleen King-Torius, Director of Operations, Dr. Sina Skelton, Associate Director of Engagement and Partnerships, Dr. Tiffany Kaiser, and Instructional and Graphic Designer, Dr. Jasur Dagli, for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support the region.